five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. on the internet but uh, that was all teddy pendergrass and a beautiful song and i talked about it yesterday um it's kind of on the yacht a little bit kind of but not quite uh, enough to play it today and it seemed to uh, register some interest in chataria uh, who wanted to actually hear the song it's a beautiful song and by the way those tuxedos that they were wearing that was the pretty much the exact same tuxedo I wore to my, my senior prom. So unbeknownst to me, I was rocking the blue notes at my senior prom. Cause I thought that the, uh, the powder blue tux was the fucking bomb when I was a senior. It's like, you guys can wear your, your black, I'm going powder blue. And uh, I, my senior prom date also kind of wore a powder blue thing, which is what I guess we're supposed to do. Um, and uh, it was a fun night. It wasn't one of those epic nights, but it was a fun night. You know what I mean? It was a wholesome, in some ways, night. Um, not wholesome like we're about to talk about today. Holy fucking shit, do I have a show planned for you today. It is uh, a peek behind the curtain of the cult of Orthodox and Hasidic Judaism. Now, I'm going to say something now which is a slight disclaimer in that there are a number of religions who have ultra orthodox practices okay they happen it's not like uh the orthodox and the hasidics have a stranglehold on these practices that said um i'm going to stop along the way because this morning i was going through and doing like timestamps on this video because there are clips I want to play. And uh, it, it really um, came to my attention that, this is, that there are very specific things inside of this world. And I'm just going to come right out and, and call for what it is. It's a cult. Most religions, I believe, are cultic. Especially the ones that get into the ultra- kind of orthodox um, view of their universe. That said, you go to the other side of the spectrum and you get the Unitarian stuff, which is all rainbows and uh, transgender uh, ministries. It's like the exact opposite end of the spectrum, but still culty in its own way. So we're going to have a rare look behind the curtain uh, through this interview that I found on soft white underbelly. And I stayed up and I watched it last night and I 
it was one of those things where I was look, watching it before I went to bed and like, I'm just kind of watched a little bit of it. I, I was, uh, I was spellbound. It was like, I gotta, I gotta see this all the way through because of the nature of the story. And what I'm going to try to do is connect it back up to the, you know, the dominant culture or the world that we're living in and try to find the threads, which are not that hard to find to make a case that this cult and particularly one of the core principles, which I'm going to talk about is an incredibly active ingredient in the world we're currently living in. And I don't have, I don't have a, I don't have a problem saying it by the way. Um, So it's going to be a very interesting discussion. And one of the things that, or at least it'll be interesting transmission because basically I'm the one that's discussing. You're discussing amongst yourselves. But it, what it did is it answered a very big question for me, which when we get there, um, I'm going to bring it up and I'm going to, I'm going to show you what my question has been and why this certain thing hasn't been addressed in the way that I think it could be, should be, and needs to be. It was, again, it was a revelation. It was a dark revelation, but it was a revelation nonetheless. I don't think we're going to be seeing Jasper today because I was upstairs in the, uh, in the office preparing for the show. And when I go up there, he likes to lay on the table slash desk, and that's where he is. So normally I'm usually down here in the lower part getting ready to do the show. And then, you know, he's with me and he'll hang out over here in the green room. But today he's, I think, he's probably going to take the morning off. But it's great that everybody's happy that he's uh, kind of back in the mix. A uh, big shout out to Steve, a.k.a. Thor by the door, uh, whose mother uh, suffered a stroke. And, um, you know, I texted Steve last night. You'll probably see him in chat today. And, you know, his mother is trying to, you know, pull the IV out and get the hell out of the hospital. I'm like, wow, that's pretty bold. So looks like our friend Steve comes from pretty uh, feisty stock. And uh, we wish her all the best and we wish him all the best and hope that her recovery is um, swift and um, allows her to uh, kind of regain her footing in this world. With that said, let's go into the best chat on the uh, intranets, of course, that being Chataria. Let's see, who do we have here today? There's Ryan. Good morning, Ryan. Neo the Wise. Morning to you. There's my man, TJ. Sony. Hi, Sony. Uh, let's see. Okay. Tom is off running. Thanks, Tom, for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks for showing up. Um, Wendy says is here. Hi, Wendy. Uh, let's see. Have a great day, Tom. Uh, okay. Who else do we have? Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. Thanks for making coffee. <laughs> Speaking of coffee, I, I, uh, I had, uh, about an hour and a half 
uh, Zoom time with uh, John Levi yesterday. I love John. That guy is awesome. He's so, and he's still he's still selling his coffee, by the way, which you can uh, purchase on Amazon. And uh, we had a, we had a great chat. Uh, let's see who else do we have here? CC, what's going on, Fran? How are you, Michael Pafford? Hello, Michael. Top of the morning to you. Uh, let's see. Sony's got a bit of pain. Well, Sony, if you were able to have some CBD sent to you, I might be able to help you out there. SJS. Okay, made it. We're glad you're here. Welcome to the festivities. Hucklebuck 411 on board. Apparently, the 101st Airborne received orders at midnight for deployment to Kiev, Ukraine. You know, one of my one of my big fears here, which I haven't really talked about, is the reinstatement of the draft. Because I, I got a draft age eligible kid, eligible kid. It's going to be interesting to see if they do try to pull this and wipe out large numbers of Gen Z. Because remember, they said that women have to do the same thing as men and serve on the front lines and you know and I, and I, and all these you know either conservative or you know alt media types were like thrilled and they were they were you know um expressing their glee and i'm thinking you guys are assholes you don't want women on the front they they, they were well see you wanted equality now you've got it ha 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 a lot of the young women who would be thrown into that situation have no investment in living in a man's world. None. And yet they will, they will be sucked into a conflict that could be devastating, devastating for um, our nation, our country, our people, absolutely devastating. So if you're a, a parent of a draft age kid and they decide to want to draft your kid, please do not allow them to do that. Let them hire their fucking proxy uh, cannon fodder. Do not allow them to send your kids into their, into their meat grinder. They've done this before. Astrologically, with Uranus and Taurus, we're right at that place in 1930, if I'm not mistaken, where the Reichstag is burning. Uh, Hitler is ready to take control of the uh, National Democratic Party. And World War II is not far behind. World War II really starts on the Uranus and Taurus tip. And if they want to change the world, they need to have a world war. They've, all, they've always shown this, and it always happens in Europe and borders and sucking in other countries like the United States. Uh, Michael, thanks for the information. I'm actually sorry to hear that. That's uh, not good news. Uh, there was an emergency meeting of the Russian Duma last night also. Let's see who else do we have in the house. Anna Sophia. Hi, Anna Sophia. Welcome. There he is, DJ MC. What's going on, Michael? 
Uh, let's see. I wore the same to my senior prom too. That's awesome, Michael. Well, I, you know, that was for me, it was 1978. And maybe that was just in the air. I think that song came out in 77. I was not influenced by that song, by the way. I just thought it was cool. And I rented it from Celix Tux Rentals. My boyfriend in high school wore powder blue tux to the prom. That's so funny. Please find that pic and post. I, I wonder if my mother might have it. She might have it somewhere. Wendy never went to the prom. Wendy, it's never too late. Maybe one of these gatherings here in the Hill Country will have a prom. Be on the last night, people get to ask each other to the prom. Wouldn't that be fun? Maybe not. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have here? My cousin recently got married in a powder blue. The powder blue tux is classic. It's timeless. Timeless. C. Pines, I saw that interview. Testimony to human resilience. Bless her. Absolutely. And what we're going to do is we're going to do our best to connect the dots to the bigger picture. And again, pull the curtain back on this thing. Let's see who else we have. Thor at the door. Hi, everyone. Good Thursday to you. To update you, Tuesday morning, my mom went to hospital with stroke symptoms. Blood thinners contradict her core clot buster bed, so they surgically removed the clot. Your mom is a soldier. That's all I got to say. Renee's here. Good morning. Hi, Renee. Kelly B. Miss Scorpio. She's here. Jasper is king. Wherever he wants to be is perfect. I love that. Mark, yes. What's going on, Mr. Mark? How are you doing? There she is. The greatest of all time. The goat, the Gucci to goat, Jake. Check it in. Always good to see you, Jake. Uh, here's some more news from Steve's mom. CT showed no bleeding. Removal, though, weaker. She's moving uh, affected side and is off respirator. She's strong for 85 and doing as well as can be expected. We'll have to see what functional deficit. You, you know what? Uh, your mom is a badass. That's all I got to say. Uh, Maybe is here. Hi, Maybe. Ahoy to you and welcome aboard. Uh, so much love in the in the chat for uh, Steve and his mom. You are the walruses here, making some creative tea this morning. Ooh, that sounds great. I do I do the gold kratom at night before I go to bed. The gold kratom and the uh, CBD gummy before I go to bed. And the gold kratom is um, is really good for inflammation. I don't wake up in the morning feeling all stiff and shit. Uh, let's see. Uh, because of import fees, the product doubles in price. I'm sorry to hear that, Sony. I'm, I, I wish we could get you something that would be affordable. Kelly B um, started his junior college yesterday. Yeah, man, if they're going to send these kids off to, the, to this, this meat grinder, they're going to have a fucking fight on their hands. 
Uh, let's see who else do we have here. I'm missing anybody. Chris and Steve. They're in the house. I guess they're on with Freeman. That's cool. Equicentric three world wars. Yeah, I think we're knocking on the door. Wood prices going down a tad. That comes from uh, Chris and Steve. Um, JMP Love. What's going on, Jackie? Good to see you. Empath bringing a, a, a little touch of uh, high art and literature into the chat. My name is Osmondius, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. No thing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. Ooh. That is a dose right there. Uh, let's see. Powder Blue by the Cactus Blossoms is a mellow song. I'm going to look that up, Hucklebuck. I'm sure something in Guatemala. Um, check out the Kratom thing, too. Uh, Kratom is a really interesting product. And you, not all Kratoms, just like not all CBDs, are created equal. Uh, but Kratom... If you get the right Kratom and you use it responsibly, Kratom can be very effective. Very, very effective. You just have to use it responsibly. Okay. Just like anything. Anything has to be, you have to have some responsibility with uh, just about anything, right? Speaking of uh, CBD, let's get into some True Hemp Science. Of course, True Hemp Science is a sponsor of the show. And you can find everything you need for CBD and your CBD needs at uh, truehemscience.com backslash ref backslash 23. And when you're in there, let me just, let me, let me repeat this because people do listen on the podcast side, truehemscience.com backslash ref, R-E-F backslash 23. That's it. Real simple. Put that in your browser. And uh, you click through and you're in the relaxing, peaceful, mellow world of the CBD homepage, the Trium Science homepage, which it's like ASMR. It's just like a total ASMR experience. But once you're there, you can find out about uh, what they have, what the benefits are. And if you spend $100 or more, uh, Chris will throw you in some free product which is always, it's a nice bonus deal. It's a nice, nice bonus deal. You spend $150 or more, you get the free shipping. Don't forget to put 15MINS in the little box at the end for your checkout. So you get the free goodies. Uh, and Chris knows that you've come from this world. It's always a good thing. And all boats rise and we've been rising since, uh, Chris has been a, a sponsor of the show and a big shout out to him. Okay. Uh, why don't we get into this show today? So we're just, you know, let's see, 22 minutes in and we're all ready to get into the subject matter. I re I've been watching these interviews on this channel, this YouTube channel called soft white underbelly. And these, a lot of these interviews are crazy. The stories that these people have are 
I don't want to say they're nuts because they're not nuts, but the amount of insanity and the amount of um, what I would call derivation of the human experience is fascinating. In some ways, they kind of remind me of a video version of Diane Arbus's photographic work. If you're not familiar with Diane Arbus, she was a photographer, mostly in New York City, but she moved around and her subjects or the subjects of her photos were people that were on the fringe of society. And um, sometimes it was, it was hard to look at her photos, but she was putting a lens kind of like, was it uh, Dorothea Lang, the woman who went in and photographed a lot of the Appalachian families, like almost documentary style of people that we don't see in our everyday life. And with Diane Arbus, it was the, the cities, wasn't in the backwoods of the Apple, Appalachians. And ultimately Diane Arbus, this and this is this is a really weird part of her work she becomes her art she becomes one of the fringe reject subjects that she captured so eloquently poignantly and disturbingly in in, in her work there was a a, a, a uh, these twins that she photographed there were these sisters and they always had this weird look about them. Anyway, I used to see them a lot in San Francisco. And I think every now and then they would be invited to one of the parties we would have at San Francisco Magazine. It's like, oh, I know those. I know those women. They were part of Diane Arbus's photographic uh, body of work. So these videos are kind of like that in that it gives us an insight into people that have lived either damaged lives or fringe lives, lives that many people have no insight or concept about and what people have to do in order to maintain those lives. So this is another one of those interviews and the person that I'm, I'm talking about is named uh, Chasia. And her story is crazy. It's a crazy story. And it's an important story because what I, again, what I, what I'm going to attempt to do is to connect the dots between her personal experience and how elements and threads of that world have seeped into what we would call the dominant culture. And even the word culture is a very strange word. When you, when you break down the word culture, certainly you get cult as part of culture. And mo most people know that. But the other thing with culture is a culture is essentially something that's gone rancid. When you look at a, a culture for, say, yogurt, 
it's gone rancid. If you look at a culture in a Petri dish, what they're trying to do is get it to a point where it becomes rancid. So you can see how the bacteria inside of that culture forms. Because it doesn't form in an inert and sterile medium. The culture that it that it's part of has to become rancid or in some cases fermented. Now, there are positive aspects of that because fermentation can be really good. And there are other aspects of it that aren't good. You can get food poisoning. Like what happens if meat goes rancid? You'll get food poisoning. Why? Because a culture has developed on the rancid source. So when you, when you look at the word culture, it can go in either direction. It could be rancid and rotten and toxic and poisonous, or it could be something that is fermented and can be the building blocks of flora in your gut. There is that interpretation. But there's a, there's a very different kind of, I think, process around something that is fermented because it's intentional. There's an intentionality with fermentation. When things go rancid, there's perhaps some degree of intentionality, but in most cases, it's mostly a byproduct of neglect. You're not keeping your eye on that thing. You're leaving it out for too long. It's been exposed to the elements for too long or it's past its expiration date. So therefore that thing becomes rancid and, and a particular culture develops on that thing. So there's a little bit of a difference between uh, something becoming rancid and something becoming fermented. So what we're gonna look at today is the rancid part. Ultimately, it becomes the fermentation for uh, um, Chassius. I'd love to interview her, by the way. Uh, and I'd love to look at her chart. The astrologer in me is like, wow, I'd love to see this fucking chart. But she ultimately uses the rancid part of her culture to ferment her growth. It's an interesting process. And there can be a symbiosis between the two, or they can be completely separate and have different impacts on the individual and the dominant paradigm. All right, so let me get into this and start to play some of this. I, I have my, uh, my show notes here. And um, let me bring those up so that I know where we are. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to play uh, the first, the intro and roughly to the four minute mark because it, it sets the stage and begins to tell her incredibly compelling story. Let me make this up. Let me make this bigger. Cause I'm, I'm going to go back and forth here. Cause I have to look at my notes and I'm going to put my headphones on so I can, I can listen. All right. So uh, this is Chasya, the rabbi's daughter taking us behind the curtain into the cult of the Hasidim, the cult of the ultra-Orthodox community. Here we go. All right, Hasha. 
Hasha. Hasha. Where, where are you from originally? Originally from California. Oh, really? Los Angeles. But you're living in New Jersey now. So I was three, and then we moved to Brooklyn. Lived there till I was nine, and then we moved to New Jersey, to Lakewood, New Jersey. So you, tell me about your family and, and how you grew up. Well, because my parents were extremely religious, the first fault, I would say, for all of us as children in our family growing up was the belief that birth control was a sin and that every child that is granted and every pregnancy that is granted is a gift from God. So um, my mother was procreating at an alarming rate and she was pregnant a total of 13 times. And as messed up as it sounds, thank God only eight of us survived because they weren't financially in a situation where they could take care of eight kids. They weren't mentally regulated and mentally stable enough to take care of eight kids. And as a result, my family life was pretty terrifying, pretty scary, pretty nerve wracking and never feeling safe. So your family's religious background, you get, you're Hasidic? We're both ultra-Orthodox, and there's also Hasidic in the family as well. So mm. there's both in the family. But there's spectrums of ultra-Orthodoxy, and there's spectrums of Hasidicness. So there can be people that are ultra-Orthodox that are even more religious than Hasidics. So it's almost like it's a contest. Who can be more pious, more devout, more restrictive, and more cultish? Is it? Is it almost competitive it's a mold and the mold is one way of being and if you're not going to fit that mold unless you surpass that mold to an unnatural state of sinless behavior your goal is to always fit that mold and if you're not going to fit that mold you are desecrating the holy name of god again when we're kids, it is drilled into us. We are God's chosen. We are to be a light unto the nation. We are hated because we are God's chosen people. And as a child, that's not something I wanted to hear that I was hated. You know what I mean? I wanted to be liked. I didn't want to be hated and I didn't want all this pressure. And I would say as a child, we learned a lot of very bloody paganistic things in our religion that no child should ever witness. For example, there's this holiday called Rosh Hashanah where it's like the Day of Atonement where we um, repent for our sins. And in order to repent for our sins, there would be a bunch of live chickens and the girls would be in one group and the boys would be in one group. And they would pick up the live chickens and they would wave them over our heads and say these blessings. And I remember we'd all duck terrified that the chickens were gonna poop on us. And I remember very young girl in Brooklyn watching the chickens get slaughtered, running around in circles with the blood shooting out of their necks. And you know, we were told that all those chickens were gonna go to charity and feed the poor. But you know, in the name of religion, we were just exposed to things that most kids I know nowadays are not exposed to. All right. So this is the first clip that I want to stop at. It, that 
I, I'm just trying to put my my head in that situation, being three, four, five years of age, and how absolutely terrifying that would be. Terrifying. Here you are, you're hanging out there and you get this chicken being waved over your head, squawking and clucking, and then taking on your supposed sin. And now you have a ritual sacrifice. And then you see the chicken running around with its head cut off, literally running around blood spurting everywhere. It's mind blowing. And it's, it's a trauma based mind control. That's what's happening here. They may believe that there's something going on here. The chicken becomes the recipient of the sin, but it's also a form of trauma based mind control. Now they don't have pets because they believe that cats and dogs are unclean. So they can't pull like a Kathy O'Brien and, you know, kill Kathy O'Brien's dog in front of her when she's a little girl to traumatize her. This is about as close as ambient trauma that it can get. And that's just from the jump. That's from the jump. And there's more. You're going to hear more here in a second. Um, the other thing, too, which is weird. Now, think how many groups of people do this every year in the New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia area. We'll call it the tri-state area. A lot. And it's all around the same time of year, which means that there's a bunch of chickens that are going to go to market. They're not going to be given away to charity. That's what they're saying. Those chickens will be sold. And there's probably, I, I don't know for certain, but there's probably a group that collects all the chickens and processes them and then sells them to local delis, but butchers mainly, local butchers. Those, those chickens will get sold. And the idea that these chickens would be a part of this ritual and then wind up in somebody's belly is uh, equally horrific, to be honest with you. It's like they're, they're passing on this ritual slaughter for people to consume. Okay, I'm going to shrink the window here a little bit, and then go back to my show notes and see where we go next. Okay, so I can segue right into this next part. This will take us up to about the five-minute mark here. And she's going to talk about uh, something similar. And this has to do with impurities and demons that at a very early age, they are instructed to avoid. Here we go. And it sounds like it didn't really fit into who you wanted to be. 
You were you were uncomfortable with that whole. I think that anybody who feels restricted is not going to feel happy. If you are doing something, any religion, anything you do that you feel forced, you feel restricted, you feel obligated and pressured, there's not going to be any love for it. And it always came in a way of fear, in a way of you're going to go to hell, you're going to get an early death. There would be all sorts of things being told to us. At the age of three, I wasn't allowed to walk more it's called for anybody who's watching this that wants to question it's called dalit amot we're not allowed to walk a certain amount of feet until we wash our hands negovasar which means we wash off the impurities of our sleep at age three already i have to perform this ritual all right i want to stop there just for a second where did we see this ritual behavior covid I talked about this from day one, that part of the whole thing with the hand sanitizer and neurotically cleansing and purifying your skin was an externalization of, of a different tradition. And this is exactly what she's talking about. Exactly what she's talking about. Let's keep going here. And we're taught that the water that we use is so impure that if we were to drink it, Shaden, which are demons, will come and attack us. I don't necessarily disagree with her on this part and this part of their culture. And it's not because the water is impure from a religious sense. The water is impure from a municipal sense where they will put fluoride in the water, chlorine in the water. And now we have all kinds of you know, ambient drugs that show up in the water supply, everything from uh, cocaine to Xanax to birth control, xenoestrogens. So yes, the water is impure, but I think what, is being implied here is that because it's not water from the Holy Land, no matter what water they're getting, it could be the cleanest fucking water in North America. Let's say water from someplace in Northern Wyoming or Northern Idaho, it would still be impure. So just a little bit of an editorializing moment there. So like we're learning very uh, crazy things as children and having that as your foundation, if you're a strong-willed child like me, who's going to question and not necessarily just follow, you're going to have a hard time. And that Okay. She, she talks about her individuality. Whoops. Sorry. My bad. Let me bring her back. I apologize for that. I just needed to make it smaller. Let me, uh, let me make this screen a little bit smaller. And we're going to go back into the show notes here. Okay, so this is, I, I probably should just let this uh, roll a little bit. Um,
All right, so what I'm going to do is, because I have all these little notes and breakdowns here, I'm going to play this from this point to just about 11 minutes, but I will stop along the way and make some commentary. So, so she's less interrupted. Let me do that. Um, I just have so many things to say about the things that she's literally confessing here. Here we go. That was the kind of child that I was. I, none of it made sense. I was always somebody who cared about fairness and justice. And I didn't see any of that. So I remember like, you know, even just this might sound really stupid, but just having to in the summer dress in all those layers would be so hard for me that, you know, when, you know, I was, you know, in camp, I would always roll down my socks or do those little things and just you know, just show like it was so bad and so sinful. And I was waiting for that lightning to come strike me down. And I remember even as a little kid, like being terrified of my mother because like she walked into the pool area and immediately I can demonstrate for you what I did because I realized my socks were rolled down. How dare I in 90 degrees have my socks rolled down. And I immediately clutched my stomach. And I bent down and I had this big dress, which immediately covered my bare legs. Mind you, I'm still wearing my thick socks that are, you know, rolled down. And I'm like, oh, my stomach hurts, you know, so that she wouldn't hit me, you know, because that's what she did. She was a hitter, you know, she reacted, she didn't respond. And, you know, she was just, Looking back now, I can understand that in her mind, being the most pious and being the most religious was her badge of honor. And her daughter, her not seeing me as my own human being and as a branch of her, you know, that was punishment and that was not tolerated. And at a very young age, I realized I didn't belong and I was going to have to fit in. And that just never sat well with me. I never could fit in. I had too much of a big mouth. I had too much of a mind. And this is not a circle where individuality is praised. Okay. This is a big, big part of this interview. And she's going to talk about how individuality is suppressed. And I'm going to stop the video after she goes through this, because this is one of the most important revelations that I learned and understood through this, this video. And it answered a very significant question for me about this whole process. Here we go. It is absolutely terrifying to be an individual. You need to be a penguin. You know, they all wear the black and the white. You need to be part of the tribal penguin community. Apologies to the community for saying that. But, you know, that's what it felt like. You know, everybody's, you know, in the same clothing. 
and I feel very much like I am an individual and I'm not somebody that, you know, I am a black sheep. She's going to get into this analogy of the black sheep, but let's go back for a second. Individuality is frowned upon. The idea of conformity and group conformity is essential to the family, the religion, and the culture. They do not want somebody like her having an independent thought. Now, the reason why this is an important revelation is because when I talk about, say, Judaism and Jewish power and Israel, and I, and I talk about it, and I, and I attempt to talk about it in a way that I think is holistic, that because most cultures have had to become circumspect and self-reflect upon their own culture and their own shortcomings, which may, may not always be a bad thing, If it becomes something that's obsessive, it will turn into a terminal obsession. And that culture will, will ultimately, or that group, we'll call it culture because it's the word we use, that group will participate in its own genocide. If it becomes too inverted and takes place over too long of a period of time without any kind of resolution, that type of self-reflection leads ultimately to a nihilistic ending. But one of the things that I've often asked, it was a question that I've asked is if let's say the, uh, the white community or the Christian community is being reprimanded for not reflecting upon its shortcomings, the things that it has done in order to, be a dominant culture at the expense of others. This is being asked of a particular group on a daily and moment by moment basis. It's starting to seep into the black community. And maybe that's not a bad thing. At least from their perspective, they're starting to ask questions like, why do we always vote Democrat when nothing ever changes? Maybe we're being used. Maybe we're being manipulated. That kind of self-reflection is important. The Chinese or the Asian community is now having to do some self-reflecting. And it's not necessarily, well, why do we always have the smartest kids? And why, why do our kids wind up going to the best schools? And why do we have uh, an abundance of abundance? They're not asking those questions. They're asking the questions of why are we now being targeted? Because it feels like there are groups of people who don't like our ability to move forward in the world. Now they're being self-reflective. So we can see these levels of self-reflection manifest in different ways, in different forms. Clearly with whites and Christians, that self-reflection ultimately without resolution leads to genocide. 
My big question is that if these other groups theoretically are going through a similar process, why does Judaism not have to go through the same thing? Why do they not have to self-reflect upon their shortcomings and perhaps even the 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 uh, idea that there is Jewish power and Jewish control in our society? They, it's like, well, we're not going to really self-reflect on that. We're just going to call this hate speech or anti-Semitism. There's no self-reflection. The self-reflection there would be, well, just like what's happening in the quote-unquote white and Christian world, it would be genocidal. But what she's really talking about here gets to the truth of the matter, is that they this is not promoted. This is not promoted inside of the culture. You are a part of a group. And she's going to talk about this drastic dichotomy that exists. I'm going to talk about that too. But to me, this is a really important revelation. It is frowned upon to be an individual. Because if you're an individual, what do you do? You ask questions. That's what happens to individuals. They ask questions. They, they are cursed by one word. And that word is why. And they don't want that word to be uttered inside of their culture. Because once the question is asked, once why is tabled, then it gets very uncomfortable if you can sit through the um, orthodox uh, description or the orthodox answer to the why. You can sit through that and keep asking why. It becomes problematic. And by the way, this, this, this is the same thing that can happen in any number of groups. I'm sure there's a version of Hasha who's Mormon. Or there's another version of Hasha who grew up in a really strict, ultra-religious Catholic household. So there are variations on her story or of her story inside of these different faiths, or let's call them for what they are, cults. But this one is very, very specific because of the, of the drastic contrast that lies at the root of this. I'm going to play this and you're going to hear what I, you're going to hear what I'm talking about. You have to think for yourself. Also, what I learned is being a black sheep makes you no less valuable. It just makes you a different color sheep. We're all the same on the inside. If we're different on the outside, it's just the outside. We all are the same. But unfortunately, when you're in these super duper secluded, closed off elitist communities. She uses the word elitist. That's an important word. Keep that in mind. I was watching that episode with the Klansman, and I feel like my father is exactly like him. Extremely separatist, extremely elitist. 
if he would see me speak with someone of another the race would threaten to send me to the to Israel um extremely homophobic extremely the Klansmen had more open mind than my father I feel like in these in they they've internalized the Holocaust where I live it feels like the ghettos of Warsaw they the women are shaving their heads when they get married. The boys are getting their heads shaved. Why are women getting their heads shaved? That has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with modesty. It feels as if like they took this trauma of all being told that, you know, they belong in ovens and they really kind of internalized it. And in Lakewood, it feels like, you know, they just never, they dress the same. They look the same like in Europe. It's almost like they even say things like they have to procreate as much as possible to make up for all the Jews that Hitler murdered. They say crazy things, you know? They don't drive German cars. They carry the grudge. The DNA has switched up. And if you dare want to go outside, you're a traitor. You're, you're 100% a traitor. You, they'll say things to you like, your people died because they were Jews and you're willingly going and marrying a non-Jew? How dare you? They'll, they'll shame you and use guilt and shame to major, major manipulation tactics to keep you. To keep her in the cult. So... Let's just talk about this for a second. This is, to me, there are a couple of other important points that she's going to bring up. This is one of the most important. So she mentions the word elitism. Clearly, her, her culture, a specific iteration of her religion, believes that they are elite, that they are God's chosen people. At the same time, they are also running this very deep persecution program. And she said something that is mind-blowing. And the, the, the idea that they've internalized the Holocaust to the point where they're you know, frozen in time, that they are uh, literally still living out their experience in the uh, in the ghettos of Warsaw. That's what they're doing. And using that, uh, that, that, I wouldn't call it original sin. It's not, it, but, but there is something deeply ingrained here that adds to the separatism adds to the elitism, and is also used as a cudgel of control. It's, it, it, in some ways, it is related to original sin. And I've, and I've talked about the Holocaust um, in terms of it being a different cultural iteration of the crucifixion of Christ. And she just affirmed that for me. It's as if 
a particular group could say, oh, you have the crucifixion of one man, we have the death of six million. And you can debate that number if you want. I think it's up for debate. But that's what they're doing. It's like Jesus died for your sins. Why, why are you going to disgrace our family, disgrace our faith, and ultimately disgrace the Son of God who died for you? That is used, by the way, in Christianity. I'm not sure how much it's used in Catholicism. I'm sure it's there. But that is used, and they're doing the same thing. How could you disgrace our family? How could you disgrace our faith? How could you marry somebody outside of our community and our faith? Six million people died for you. You're, you're, you're disgracing them. This, this is a major, major point of the psychology inside of the group. It keeps you in the cult. And not only that, but it keeps you in a lead line box or person in a lead line box. So they don't question things. They don't want people stepping outside the box. And at some point it takes on a life of its own. Now, are there people inside of that faith who know what's going on, who understand the measures of control? I would say yes. Are there people that reflexively do it because it's ingrained in their culture and it's part of the, the, the dark folklore that they share amongst one another? Yes, they, they don't question it. It's become embedded and it's become part of their modern mythos. And it's very effective because it keeps people in line. It keeps them from really internalizing and looking at who they are, where they came from, what this represents, and is it healthy? Is it healthy? This woman, for whatever reason, something in her DNA, she was the mutant. And she was able to step outside of her conditioning and her programming and whatever kind of pain, whatever kind of psychotrauma she experienced, it was not enough ultimately for her to be able to step outside of the world that she wanted to be a part of. She's got family in this world. That's the other part. It's the family place. It's your blood relations, the people you, you know, go to sleep at night in the same space with and wake up with and, you know, eat with and have social rituals with and laugh with and cry with. I mean, all these things happen. And those things are hard to sacrifice because it's the only thing that a lot of these people know. And yet she has something inside of her that pushes her through ultimately all of this. Let's keep going. So what, what kind of things did you go through as, as a child, as a teenager? You know, what, you, you, you must have at some point started to break away from your family and yes. your religion? So I would say the first core traumatic memory for me, which started me really having a huge issue with covering up 
and having a huge issue is we lived in a two-family home in Brooklyn and there wasn't a lot of supervision and because there was nothing ever to do in our house we would always be downstairs and there was teenage boys downstairs and they would torture me now that I think about it always running their bikes into me pretty horrible stuff like at parties stealing my candy that I would collect and stuff like that but one time we were downstairs and I obviously didn't understand what was happening at the time you know now I I do understand but you know like people have those washing machine and dryers where they have those sliding doors so me and the girl the young girl the sister of the teenage boy he put us on top of the washing machine and dryer he closed the doors and he violated us and the mother of the downstairs neighbor walked in pulled open the doors saw us naked and screamed she violently slapped her daughter chased her son away and told me to go upstairs to my house now that night i didn't think anything of it you know that night i remember being yanked by my hair in my sleep out of my bed and being dragged from my bedroom all the way down there was a long 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 hallway and it went through the living room the dining room the kitchen the bathroom the closets all the way through the whole house my mother was dragging me by my hair she lifted me by my hair threw me face down on the bed and yanked my pants down and she began smacking me over and over again really really hard and she began to scream don't you ever 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 be on CS again which means immodest and then she took me threw me off the bed go back to sleep and I'm shook sobbing hysterically not understanding what the fuck just happened but my mother was a very violent woman and when my mother would enlist my father when she would just she was always hormonal and pregnant and if i come across as that i'm defending her it's more that i'm trying to understand her now as an adult versus being a victim so like when my father hit us would leave marks bad ones like pop blood vessels in her eyes and swollen cheeks and i was the kid who went to school and would say things like i walked in a door and my mother was the kind of woman who like if you just like tapped her in the wrong place she would flip around and just slap you really hard because you were just trying to get her attention she was extremely full of rage and anger and just always resorted to violence which terrified me because I'm somebody who doesn't walk on anthills so like I'm such a gentle person so that type of fear resulted in me you know till this day you know having heart palpitations and gut issues because you never knew. she was just so unpredictable like if you said you didn't like dinner she would do things like force feed us put a timer on and if you didn't eat she would make like stuff like buckwheat what 5 year old wants to eat buckwheat like kasha 
And she would put a timer on. And if you didn't finish that food, she would send you to bed without dinner. You didn't get your homework done. And you would tell the teacher, sorry, your homework wasn't done and signed. She would do like crazy, crazy, weird ass things that are not normal because it didn't dawn on her that maybe her kids had sensory issues and didn't like certain foods. Um, there's just, such weird things like if I would accidentally there would was a snowball fight that we had and I threw a snowball on my brother and not realizing there was like a shard of ice in it and I cut his head open by mistake I got such a beating my whole side of my face was so blown up and bloody that my father actually apologized to me my parents never apologized for hitting us even if they made a mistake my mother would say, well, God must have felt you deserved it if I hit you. Things would be bad to the point where I remember going paddle boating on a lake. And I remember lifting my skirts like right above my knees. And, you know, I'm 50% Russian, so I have the pale skin, but I also Catan. So I got really bad burns. And I was too scared to tell my mother because I knew my mother would say, well, why were you immodest? Of course you're going to get punished. Anytime there was a sexual violation or an assault, it was, well, what did you do? What were you wearing? It was always, it's your fault. There was always the victim blaming, always. It was never, let's not invite the creep over. Let's make sure you cover up more. It was always your fault, not, he's an animal, he's a monster, he's a demon, he's broken. And... The excuse was when I was confronted, my parents about this was we didn't know any better. But my friends kind of grew up in the same type of situation and their parents did change and did get help. So I feel like that's just a cop out. I feel like it's an excuse. I think her friends or her friend is very much an outlier in this culture. I could be wrong, but that's my, that's my impression. Excuse. Because if you really want to know better, you will. So kids make excuses, adults make changes, you know? There's only so much denial I can take before I realize like certain people, if their brain is broken, it's healthier to just separate. And that's another thing that I strongly advise people to do is if your family is not committed to healing, get away. If you can use religion as an excuse to harbor criminals, you know, you have to question what your religion is. This is a really important point. She's going to talk about, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, her brother uh, winds up going to prison for uh, pedophilia. Now, she doesn't openly state this, but clearly it's inferred. What she's also going to talk about here is the subculture of the religion that has its own system that takes care of things, including legal problems. So pay close attention to what she has to say here. And I say that to the people that are doing that right now and know who they are. 
um, it's a very sad thing that, you know, in a lot of very religious cultures, there's, I'm going to get religious on all of us for a second. There is a song we sing on the Sabbath, and it's called Ashes Chayil. And there's a, a line in it that says Shekar Hachain Vehavel Hayofi, which means that we glorify lies and we uglify beauty. All right. This might be the most important. This might be the most important takeaway from this entire interview. Now, how she interprets this is a little, I mean, obviously she's part of this world. So this is her experience. How I interpret that as it relates to the world that we're living in is just think about what she just said. In the lyrics of that song, we glorify lies we uglify beauty. What kind of world are we living in? We are living in a world where lies are glorified. Liars are lionized. And what about beauty? It's uglified. We are living in a world where everything is inverted, where these traditional notions of beauty and grace and um, aesthetic values are being completely turned on their heads. Like if you just listen to that one sentence, you'll be able to see the amplification of that idea into what I would call the dominant paradigm. I'm not going to call it the dominant culture. I think it's a very, very important understanding about what she's saying. Now, I, I'm going to continue to play this, and you're going to hear her interpretation, which is a little bit different than, than mine, but still worthy of, of listening to and understanding from her perspective. Here we go which means let's say we think that when someone abstains from promiscuity that they're prude and that they're bad because they care about sexual health and they want to be celibate and they want to have meaningful sexual relationships. You get scoffed at for that. But somebody who goes and makes $50 million off of porn is going to be praised. So in the same right. Did you hear that? Somebody who makes $50 million off of porn is going to be praised. The person that wants to uh, practice chastity and have a sexual relationship that is not programmed by their dominant culture will be vilified. Let that sink in in our religious culture, they're going to take the ugliness and they're going to hide it. They won't necessarily beautify it, 
Okay, so she's got a little bit of a different take. But like the cat is out of the bag. I'm sorry. It's it's out of the bag. Let's keep going. But they're going to hide it. And the beauty of the people who have the courage to speak up, those people are going to get punished. So she's personalizing that. That's her story, her, her journey. Those people are going to get cursed. Those people are going to be found dead. Those people are going to be found blackmailed. Because there's like a whole underworld going on in these super religious circles where they have their own police, they have their own, if there's uh, even landlord uh, abuse, there's organizations, they have like their whole, there's a whole underworld going on of loaning and getting people out of trouble and lawyers and it's good, but it's also bad because let's say if somebody It's very hard, but you know, I think it's important to speak about it because not everybody goes through it. So there is no test and testimony. So if you love someone and you have a sibling, you have no idea is mentally ill because they didn't harm you. They didn't choose you as a victim. And you're told one day that this person is going to jail for 10 years because they're a pedophile, you actually do go into denial. You can't believe it at first because this is, this is your blood, this is your family, this is your protector, this is someone who took beatings for you, this is somebody. And, you know, I can even understand, like, not to go off on a tangent, like why Nicki Minaj would defend her brother because there's this you can't accept in the beginning that this is actually the truth. You can't. It's so mind-boggling, but you then find out, hey, there was pedophiles in the family already. This person was a victim. There, It's already been going on. And so she's talking about institutional pedophilia. And apparently her brother was a pedophile and wound up going to prison. This is what she's talking about. And there, this, there is an intimation that there is a generational cover-up going on. And inside of this world that has its own subculture of policing, judging, lending, um pressuring that they can keep a lid on a lot of now by the way that is not uncommon to certain groups again i'll, I'll use the mormons as an example let's say the mormons um have trouble in mormontown what are they going to do they're going to take care of it they're not going to let it get to a point where it's going to be public. And if it is public, uh, it's quickly swept under the rug. And that person is summarily dispatched to the memory hole. This is what she's talking about. But there's also the component of shock and trauma, which leads into mind control. 
because in her mind, she can't believe the story. This person was somebody who stood by her, maybe took a couple of belts for her, might've been her protector, but then she has to wrap her head around the fact that he might've diddled a little boy or a little girl, whatever happened. I don't know what happened. And that is so cognitively dissonant for her that it creates a form of trauma-based mind control in its own way. Because quickly you have to fall back into line, fall back into the system, not question these things. And she's even talking about how if she or other people step out of line, there's a whole subculture of the control mechanism that kicks in. This shit is insidious. Now, it may just be part of the matrix in general. Like this is how the matrix sets out to create systems of control in general. It's not really how I grew up. I mean, I went through some shit, but I didn't go through this shit. And, and I would think that most people listening to this or watching this have their own version of the shit they've gone through, but not like this. Clearly, I did, I did not have a whole subculture of cops and lawyers and adjudication uh, and people that would settle disputes between. That was not a part of my life. In this world... It is. It's a network. It's a network that is resting below the common the, the common denominator or the dominant or the paradigm of the world that we all cohabitate into some degree or another. And again, there are other groups that have this. Freemasonry is famous for this. I'll bring the Mormons up again. There could be sects of Catholicism that have their, their own version of this. And maybe even when you get into like hardcore Southern dispensationalism, you'll find some of that. I don't know. It's not part of my world. I haven't looked into it deep enough, but I'm sure there is. Of course, there's going to be a crossover, I think, with Freemasonry. But this is the system of control that kept her and other people silent and inside of the cult. All right, let's keep going. And what's so fucked up is these songs that they're singing and they're, you know, being all religious, they're just all living a lie because they're not outing these perpetrators. They're not outing these people. They're protecting them. They're hiding it instead of saying, you know what, this person is broken. This person needs to be put the fuck away. This person needs to be put away from society, not quickly run off to another country or keep it a secret or be angry at the people who outed them. And, you know, as the famous saying goes, if you enable an abuser, you are an abuser. And in the beginning, when I found out that I was related to the worst sort of human, I mean, even murderers aren't treated as horrible as people who harm children. And it's like something you just, you die. You die. How do you come back from that? How do you, how, how do you heal? 
how do you heal? And I kept quiet because I was so ashamed. I kept quiet and I didn't say anything and everybody just keeps quiet. But it's time to fucking speak up. It's time to, you know, you keep doing the same thing over and over again as the definition of insanity. So we need different results, you know, because it's going to keep happening. What's so crazy is that I had mentioned that, you know, we repeat cycles. So um, when I met my, I was very young, very naive, and this was obviously before I had any awareness that pedophilia was in my family. Uh, premarital sex is not acceptable in, in our culture. You're a virgin. I mean, you're terrified and if you're, you dare, you don't get to come home. You know what I mean? There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of emotional intimidation and emotional manipulation at a very young age. And you feel fear and hatred because you cannot love what you fear. So shockingly for me, like when I hit puberty, I did not turn to men. I turned to numb myself. Like, well, everybody was running to go hook up and have their first kiss. I was going to, well, what I had to do was my parents just didn't give a fuck that I was slowly dying. So I started to self-harm. I started to starve myself. I started to, uh, you know, anything to get their attention that I wasn't okay. And this started when I was about 13 years old and it was like getting to high school time because I was just so alienated and so hated in the schools and the teachers were constantly sending me to the principal. And what's insane is the principals would call my parents and say, what's going on with her? Was she molested? And they would say, no, no. And meanwhile, I wasn't gotten beaten for it. And of course I was act acting immodest. Like that was my biggest crime was that I wanted to fold up my sleeves and that I want. So she's getting into how her programming is breaking down. The, the humanity in her can't accept the fact that she's being treated so horribly. So at this point she just wants to die. And this moves her into a series of being taken out of various schools uh, going to uh, a, a, a boarding school of traditional, quote unquote, Jewish girls in, of all places, Memphis. She experiences some latitude there, but also hatred because, you know, she's obviously an attractive woman. Uh, when she was a young, younger, in her teens, she was targeted as being probably too attractive. So they're starting to pile on with her there. And eventually it takes her to Israel for two years and the first year, uh, you know, more over control. Second year, she winds up having a boyfriend, uh, but it's completely dysfunctional. And when she comes back home, she falls in love. And she falls in love with a guy whose mother is Jewish and his father is not. So this, he's considered a mongrel uh, in her faith. And this guy was so into her that um, he promised her parents that he would go to Israel, that he would uh, submit himself to traditional religious training just so he could marry her. 
And according to her, uh, he was her Prince Charming. Tall, athletic, good looking. And, and for her, it was like, this is my ticket out of the house. And then what happens, ironically, is that he winds up becoming more traditionally an Orthodox Jewish than she was. And he becomes a version of her father, which is not, uh, it's not uncommon. That is not uncommon. Um, but now she gets married. The marriage is weird. And she gets into this part where she has to um, take part in the mikvah. And I don't have that um, plotted out here. But let me see if I can find it. Move ahead to that part. Not allowed to be touched. We are not allowed to have sex. A man is not allowed to hand us anything. They have to put it down. All right. Let me get into how degrading this this. So this is a pre mikvah. She's on her period. Okay. So these are the rules of engagement for her when she's on her period. She's an untouchable, which eventually leads her into the mikvah. And it's all part of the strategy to make sure that when she comes out of this, she's ovulating and can get pregnant. Okay, watch what she has to say. The mikvah part is, uh, is, is pretty mind-blowing. Here we go. This thing that we have to do. So when we get our period, um, we're deemed impure. So... Once our period is over, you have to then count seven clean days after your period. If you're unsure, if your period, if you can start counting the seven clean days, and wait, I'm going to jump ahead. And why is that? Because if you think about the math, when are you ovulating? You ovulate at that time. So it's to have babies. If you think about how it's set up, it's totally set up so that the woman gets pregnant. So for whatever reason, I'm sure it comes from paganistic beliefs. They believe a woman is considered impure when she bleeds. So um, I know this because my mother's a mikvah lady. So they have something called a mikvah. And men go to it once a week before the Sabbath. And the women go when they're married before their wedding. And they go to it every single time they have their period. And it's a way for also like for sexual coercion. Because it's like they claim it's a commandment that you have to procreate with your husband. Once you count your seven clean days, you then have to go to it's the, these hidden buildings. You have to pay a fee. You have to go in. You have to do a whole ritualistic bath. You have to have your nails have to be cut down. There's like a whole list of things, like a long list of 30 steps that you have to take. Then the woman comes in and inspects you from top to bottom. And then again, makes you go over the list. And then you have to like take another one, another shower. And then this is the funniest part. They take you to a chlorine filled pool that's filled with pubes and filled with nasty, disgusting, everybody else's germs after you've just been cleaned and scrubbed to the raw bone of your skin. Like I'm saying, like the laws are insane. Like you cannot have a knot in any of your hair. You're not allowed to have any nail growing out or a cuticle. Like the laws are so rigid and strict, they're insane. 
So what happens is, is they, you take off your robe, you're naked, you go down the stairs into the small pool, you have to make a blessing, and then you have to dip three times, and the lady looks, and she, you have to do a, like a special dip a certain way, and she says either kosher or not kosher, and then you have to do it again. And then after you do it, you come out and the woman puts the robe back on you and you're deemed pure again. And you go home and you go, your husband gets laid. So imagine being told because your body works and because you're healthy, you're impure. If there's anything more insulting that you cannot be touched, that you cannot be loved on, also when they have babies, for like those eight weeks, you can't be touched. Like the baby has to be put down. There's like all of these insane, crazy rituals that are going on. So when I met my ex, I told him about all these things and he swore to me that I would never have to fear that this would happen, that he would protect me and we would never, we would have the best of both worlds, that we could have all the, like the, the, the foods that we loved and we could have all the traditional foods but we would also have our American life and we would also have TV, we would have HBO, we'd have cable, we would go to the beach, we'd do all the things, eat pork. Eat pork. All right. Now that is a promise. That's a commitment. But did it stay that way? Do all the things that you know, I didn't get to do growing up. But what's crazy is, is that my ex decided that he wanted to become religious. And one of the most insane things is, is he would start telling the rabbi's daughter that she was the bad Jew. Talk about repeating cycles. So, uh, all of a sudden my clothing that he loved about me weren't acceptable anymore. My nipples were sticking out. Why are you dressing like a 12 year old girl? Why are you looking like that? No, you can't go out on the Sabbath. I'm taking your keys away. No, you can't go to your bachelorette. He would start doing crazy coercive control, crazy. So like that's when, you know, like the irony of the cycle repeating itself but that wasn't enough. So our marriage started to disintegrate because when you're going one path and you're going another path, you're growing apart. You're not growing together. So my ex is basically would say to me, the reason why our marriage isn't working out is because we don't have a kid. We don't have a fucking kid. That is why we're fighting all the time. If you just gave me a kid, we would, we would be happy. And me being young, dumb, ignorant, and naive, you know, everybody knows a, a child doesn't save a marriage. You know, therapy was never something that came to mind. I went to therapy, but he, you know, the one time he did, the, him and the therapist got into a huge fight immediately. So that, you know, so I got pregnant. And I remember thinking, me, the hopeless romantic, that he was going to come home and sweep me off my feet and swing me around in a circle and have a big bouquet of roses. And he was on the phone for 30 minutes on a business call. He didn't even look at me. My pregnancy was vicious. And my pregnancy, I 
didn't know that I had rights to my body. I didn't know that I had to have someone who despised me baby. I didn't know that I was, you know, being reproductively coerced. And I realized when he came home and like didn't even acknowledge me that I had finally given him a baby that he had waited so long for that we were all fucked. And this wasn't the answer. So when I was pregnant, I, I prayed for a miscarriage. I did because I was terrified for my child. I felt guilty. I was doing to my child what my mother had done to me. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop there because what happens is that she winds up getting uh, a divorce and uh, she does not get custody of her kid. Um, and that's a whole other story. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what I think happened to the husband, both during the marriage and after the marriage. And she actually talks about the, the perks and the benefits that he gets as a single uh, parent. So my feeling is, is that I want to take this off now. My feeling is, is that, um, he was being given cultural favors to become uh, more religious and quote unquote, more devout. What do I mean by that? Well, in that community, the more that he could show himself as being devout or pious and um, keeping his a young little tart on a string, the more I believe he was rewarded in his world. I don't think, I don't think there was any, um, I don't think that there was, there was any like mistake or disconnect from that process because why would he do that? He would do it because somebody on the other side of that transaction was rewarding him. He was either making more money, moving up. He was being shown respect. He believed that he was acquiring more power. This is my take. I have no evidence or nothing to substantiate what I'm sharing with you, but this is how these things work. So the more that he more than likely advanced, the more that he continued to treat her in a way that was consistent with how she was treated when she was growing up. And by the way, this is this is all cultic behavior. This is completely cultic behavior. Now, what happens is that due to the fact that they separate, well, more than separate the divorce, and she does not she doesn't get her kid. Um, and the community, and this is according to her now, the community rewards the husband for being a single parent because he's in the community. She's out of the community. The only connection she likely has is through her daughter and whatever kind of um, relationship she has with her family. And I don't know what that is. She doesn't really get into it. But the husband gets discounts on all kinds of things. He'll get a discount on school because he's a single parent. He'll get a discount on 
uh, foods or meats that are purchased at a, at a butcher or someplace in town inside of the community. They'll know who he is. So they will support him in their effort to continue to keep him in the community and support the raising of his daughter uh, in a traditional uh, Hasidic and um, you know Orthodox life. So there, there are rewards here for basically staying in the lane, right? And for her, that lane just kept getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And uh, now she's, you know, she's off on her own, right? And she, I, I, I have nothing outside of this interview, but I, I wanted to play it for you because I think it's really important. It gives us some insight into a world we rarely see and her candor, her honesty, uh, her bravery and her courage also gives us some insight into somebody who breaks from the pack. And for all intents and purposes was just born that way. If she was, she was born with something that set her apart from her culture and the intimidation, the coercion, um, the rules, the orthodoxy, none of it ultimately kept her under the, the grip of their control. You can tell that she still has a lot of love for those people, regardless of how this thing has turned out. And I think that actually says a lot about her. Um, and she's trying to come to terms with you know, her adult feelings about being a part of something that for all intents and purposes was just incredibly repressive and dark. You know what I was thinking when, when she was going through all that stuff with the mikvah and the, uh, the ritual, the preparation and don't touch me, you can't touch me, I'm, I'm on my period. I thought to myself, these people are fucking Virgos. That's what I thought. Like these are these are the worst Virgos you will ever ever meet. Like they're so Virgo, um, they're 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 bleeding with their Virgoan sense of perfection that will never be achieved, never be achieved. And you know when you get into Virgo, you go through this whole thing with perfection too, right? Like not just perfection, but well. Not me personally, even though I am a Virgo, I've got, I've got my son in Virgo, 29 degrees, uh, born on an eclipse. So I have an eclipse son. I wouldn't really call myself a Virgo per se, but I do think that there are some Virgos who think they're like just really superior people. Like I think it comes with being a fucking Virgo. So to me, that's a culture, a subculture that just totally screams like the worst anal retentive Virgo you're going to ever run across. In fact, so anally retentive that there's, um, you know, there's, there's, there's no room for imperfection or failure because on the other side of that, you have Pisces and you have all these like intense feelings and emotions and, and chaos that ultimately they're trying to keep at bay. It's a very interesting, if I was to really drill down into the whole religious trip in general it would be virgo and pisces oh look who's here yeah i know i know you decided to show up didn't you yeah after all this time 
Yeah, you heard you heard uh, Pisces, so you thought fish. I'll get some fish out of this deal. All right. Well, listen. Thank you all for being here. Um, I really appreciate uh, your time and your um, willingness to listen. This is not an easy subject matter to talk about. And again, what I'm what I'm trying to do is shine a light on a particular group and then basically extrapolate on that and show how that has become part of our paradigm. You, you can see it. You, you can absolutely see it. Now, to be fair, there's another video where there's um, like a Christian version of her and uh, the daughter of a preacher. So I'll play that next week. And, you know, just to, just to keep things fair, um, and we'll probably see some of the same stuff. Although, and I've never seen that video, by the way, my sense is that there will be some some different things as well. It'll be like one of those Venn diagrams, right? You'll see the control, the guilt, and all that stuff in the middle. But then the the shell um, around uh, the two experiences, I think, will be vastly different. Okay, so uh, tomorrow it'll be Russ Winter over on YouTube, and uh, we we talk with Russ uh, the last Friday of uh, every month and. Uh, it's the last Friday of every month. So thanks for being here from myself and Jasper. Use your head in order to serve what's real, your heart to stay open what's possible, and take care and bye for now.